This week on Put Your Socks On, we didn't want to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. But look, in another week of unprecedented disruption amongst the sport of cycling, we felt we couldn't avoid it. So this week's episode, we're going to take a look at the impact race cancellations are having at a grassroots level. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes in airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Hello and welcome to another special episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always I am joined by Bobby Julik. Bobby, how are the indoors treating you? Oh man, uh, I guess I'm doing okay under the circumstances with sports said to be a diversion from reality by many and almost every sporting event around the world being cancelled or postponed. Perhaps it's a good time to do a podcast like this one and help people get through their day and stay sane. I know my, my kids are home from school and they're already driving me up the wall. So um, hopefully we can give you guys something to, to laugh about and talk about other than the hot topic of, of the hour. That's it. A world without sport is a strange world indeed. And I think we should state up front, obviously there is a lot of news coverage about the coronavirus or the novel coronavirus pandemic. And that coverage, you know, they're doing a much better job, certainly both in the sporting world and outside of that than we can do. And, you know, a lot of that coverage is overwhelming, anxiety-inducing. And so whilst this week we're going to uh, look at some fallout from the, the current pandemic, from next week on we're going to be focusing on positive stories from the cycling world as a way to provide people with a little relief in these bizarre times because they are bizarre indeed. I I have been indoor. I've been like quarantined indoors for the last four or five days, barely going outside. So yeah, it is strange. And so hopefully, you know, sort of going forward, we feel our places to, you know, take a look at some of cycling's more entertaining moments and characters. Let's have a look at the racing that did happen this week. I think it was only Paris Nice, Bobby. Yeah, there wasn't much going on at all. Uh, we got through stage one and two of Perry Nice. To be honest, I didn't think they'd make it as far as they did. They did wind up shorting it by one day and finished on the Saturday instead of the Sunday. But there was a lot of weird things going on throughout. But uh, let's just jump in and, and definitely give props to the guys that did make the race exciting. Stage three was won by Ivan Garcia Cortina from Bahrain Mereda. He took a really nice sprint win over Peter Sagan. And uh, I remember from last year, Gus, Ivan Cortina actually came out of the Red Hook series and you raced with him, correct? Yeah, he did. Uh, I know Ivan well. He's a fantastic bike rider and we saw him at the uh, get a win at the Tour of California last year and he's been progressing pretty steadily. And I would have said that this year was potentially going to be a bit of a breakout year for him. But we'll see if, we, if he gets another opportunity to, you know, demonstrate his, his abilities in the next, well, certainly in the next few months anyway. But uh, good to see him getting a win, you know, certainly a positive from, from, from the week. Yeah. Stage four was a 15-kilometer individual time trial taken out by Soren Craw Anderson from the Sunweb team. Max Schockman, who was the, the leader, had a very solid ride, finishing second at only six seconds and basically cementing his lead. Stage five was won by Niccolo Bonafaccio from the Team Direct Energy team. And that was a, another impressive sprint win. I didn't really see that coming. He was able to beat Cortina and Sagan for that win. 
Moving on to stage six, we had T. Spinute win a have a beautiful solo stage win ahead of the big group of GC hitters. The takeaway from this this race for me or this stage for me was race leader Sockman coming into the final turn and absolutely just waxing the barriers. How that kid was able to just jump up, man, I don't know if he's Gumby or something like that, but <laughs> he was able to jump up immediately, but he hit those barriers hard. That did not look like it tickled at all. But, you know, these young kids nowadays, it's, it's amazing what they can do on, on two wheels. And then stage seven was won by Nairo Quintana, again, I think this is his fourth uphill victory of the of the season so far. He got caught out a little bit earlier in the week in those crosswinds and didn't have the the best time trial. He's never been the great time trialist. But when he just danced away from those guys with 4K to go, it was impressive to say the least. It was he had two fingers in his nose. And I know he was a little bit of a outside, wasn't being focused on or marked by the other GC favorites, but you know, he took 46 seconds over Tish Benut, who finished another 15 seconds ahead of the other guys in just 4K. So if that climb was much longer, or if they had the stage the next day, you got to wonder if he would have been able to take back some of that time that he lost in the crosswinds and then that crash, or I think he was the one, yeah, he had the crash on the second stage. So overall, Sockman from Bora Hansgrohe won ahead of Tish Benut. Sergio Higuita, Vincenzo Nibali finished fourth, Thibaut Pinot finished fifth, and Quintana got all the way up to, to sixth place in the overall due to that very strong climb on the last day. Yeah, he Quintana is definitely, um, of, all the, of all the general classification guys, showing that he is on form at the beginning of this season, which is great to see, but also too, you know, a little bit sort of sad knowing that we're not, we're not, not knowing when we're going to see him race next. Bobby, I want to hear your opinion right Tirreno Adriatico cancelled um, the other one days in Italy all cancelled yet the ASO decided to go ahead with Paris-Nice in what seemed like a pretty irresponsible move granted the way the rest of the world was going what do you think I'm going to give them a little bit of leeway because it happened you know the race started and then halfway through the race was when you know things really started hitting home with NBA closing down but to be honest i was really surprised that they continued when the NBA shuts down and spring training and baseball shuts down every other sporting event got canceled or postponed but then there we were watching cycling on tv I know it was a touchy situation, but I, I think it was a little bit arrogant, to be honest. And I would not have wanted to be one of those riders that had started the race. And of course, you never want to quit a race, especially if your teammates are vying for top classification or, or a stage win. But another thing outside of the ASO's decision to continue with the race was, you know, Jonathan Vodders from the EF Education First team was what was the first team that asked for permission to withdraw from those races in Italy yet they sent a team to France and I don't know that, that you know with all those seven top tier teams not even taking the start Jonathan's team going there I think Bahrain Mareda pulled out with like two stages to go a couple riders individual riders due to I think it was Mads Pedersen he pulled out because Denmark was effectively closing their borders. TJ Van Garderen stopped because like when that 30-day travel ban kind of went into effect, I'm sure he was a little nervous and wanted to get home to his kids. But it just seemed like Perry Nice wasn't quite Perry Nice, not taking away from any of the, the great racing that we did see. Those guys were flying. 
And the sad part is we don't know when we're going to see them racing again. So these, you know, a lot of the guys were sitting at home, probably watching TV saying, gosh, I wish I was there because they're going to have, if these, if they do start racing again, they're going to have kind of a jump on us. But now that all the races are, are done for at least uh, through the month of March, I don't know what to say. I'm at a loss for words, actually. And, 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 and to your point, like seven teams didn't, seven of the top teams didn't, didn't go and, and. When that happened, I sort of thought, where's the unity? Like, it would be nice to see all the teams kind of decide and act together. Um, certainly just in a show of strength from from the riders' perspective, right? But having watched the rest of the world and how they've responded and how haphazardly that is, like, it's really it's really demonstrative that that, that what's going on has caught everybody off guard and, and, and there seems to be a lack of direction kind of from everywhere, whether it's from government or the WHO or whoever on, on, on how we're meant to act. So... You know, I think it's good. It's good in the sense now that that the riders, like those riders, did stand up. Some of these teams did stand up as well, and and I guess you know the racing um, around the world has been stopped, as a you know most human sort of movements, and all in an effort to you know as quickly as we can kind of put a stop to the progress of this disease. So anyway, hopefully in the uh, in the near future we're able to at least see some sort of racing. I don't know, maybe let's get a Zwift series going. I've got no idea, but yeah, I don't really know what we're going to kind of do without all of the sports, which kind of leads us, Bobby, to the main topic of this show. Yes, absolutely. With the reality of the COVID-19 virus upon us with so many restrictions put in place across the globe, life is going to be different for a while, for sure. We don't want to make this more of the same conversation that we've been totally inundated with since, you know, this last week or two, because, yeah, there, to be honest, there's a lot more bigger problems than the sports world out there. But we plan to do an episode about race events and race event promoters further down the road. But with sporting events being canceled all around the world, we decided that now would be a good time to shed some light on the service that these race promoters provide, the passion that they have for the sport, and the hard decisions that they had to make or soon will have to make. That's exactly it, Bobby, right? Like we hear about, you know, events like the Giro being, you know, indefinitely kind of postponed. The, ca- the cancellation of the classics, but you don't really hear about district c- criteriums and local bunch rides that are, you know, also being cancelled. And and by extension of that, Grand Fondos. Like last week, I drove all the way out to Wichita only to be turned around and told to get to go home. Kind of when I got out there, because the riders I was going out to to work with were sort of stuck at their in their various airports and couldn't really get there. So you know, like hosting an event in recent years has become increasingly more costly uh, and more difficult, particularly on open roads. And for most grassroots race organizers, uh, it's the passion for the sport, not the profits that make race production an attractive venture. You know, with these smaller events or these kind of community and local and, and regional events being canceled, I really wanted to know, like, what is the real cost of that? And what is the impact of that going to, like, what is the impact of that going to be on the sport at an amateur, you know, at like a, you know, just a regular human level going in the future like does this really put in jeopardy the rest of you know like 2021 and 2022 for a lot of these smaller events yeah i mean it's such an intricate part of our sport are these people that basically donate their time to allow the rest of us to do an event or a race and i had a little bit of firsthand experience with this because growing up in glenwood springs colorado my father and his wife were race event promoters themselves 
This was in the early 90s. At one time, they had two ultra marathon running races and a bicycle race. And I learned very early that event promotion is all about passion for the sport, not really a moneymaker at all. The time and commitment that these people put into these events is a 24-hour a day, 365-day-a-year sort of thing. We all remember and return to those races that are done right, that had good weather, that had a good prize purse, but they just don't magically appear overnight, right? All is good when the event has you know good weather and goes off without a hitch, but what happens when they have to cancel or postpone their events like many are having to do now. That's it, Bobby. And so we reached out to Rich Hincapi, the president of Hincapi Sportswear and also the coordinator and, and, and organizer of a bunch of, of cycling events around the country to get a better understanding of what it takes to put on an event um, and what the potential fallout, uh, the mass cancellation will have on these events future. Yeah, Gus, you have to know by now that I have a lot of stories from so many years in the sport. And before we get to talking with Rich, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory on Rich. <laughs> Are you okay with that? You know, I know you're a little... Yeah, let's you know, do it. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like I knew this was coming. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So I met Rich at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs in December of 1986. Um, this was during one of the famous December camps uh, for juniors back in the day where you had 110 juniors send in a resume and the coaches picked all the best ones. And uh, it was normally a 16, 17-year-old uh, you know, junior camp, but I was one of two 15-year-olds that were invited to this camp. Um, I still, to this day, don't know why they, they did that, but I'm eternally grateful for it. And being the one of the two youngest guys at the camp, I was pretty intimidated and felt like a bit of a lost puppy dog there at the Olympic Training Center. But but Rich and his New York City boys, his crew, immediately took me under their wing, allowed me to sit with the, you know, sit with them at the big boys table, have somebody to hang out with, you know, in the dormitory hallways. And um <laughs> I knew nothing about the sport outside of Colorado and his stories about how big those races were on the East Coast just got me super, super excited. So much so that that following spring, my dad drove his uh, little RV with myself and and our buddy Dirk Friel that we've had we had on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, all the way to Somerville, New Jersey, from Colorado all the way to Somerville, New Jersey. And mind you, this was before cell phones. And as I opened the door to exit the RV, I just was thinking, like, how am I going to find Rich in this sea of people here? And it was crazy. As soon as I opened the door, I see him walking by. It was, like, meant to be. He was walking with a few friends. I think they were going to the registration table. But there was this one really tall kid that I didn't know. And I go over to him, hey, Rich. And, and then Rich introduces me to George, his brother. And the kid was, like, a foot and a half taller than me. You know, had a little cheesy mustache, and at the time he was 13 years old. So I was so excited to race Somerville, especially as much as as Rich and his buddies from the East Coast hopped it up. That when we started, I blasted to the front, got through the first turn, through the second turn, down the back straight, and mind you, I didn't know the course at all. And let's just say I overcooked it a little bit going into the third turn and wound up crashing my buddy Rich, who was on my wheel. 
and most of the front of the peloton. So, you know, that was that was my initiation into East Coast racing and meeting George Hincapie and um, the rest is history. So not the best start, but Rich and George are still very close friends. Rich Hincapie is the president of Hincapie Sportswear. So welcome to Put Your Socks On, Rich. We uh, Thank you. <laughs> we hear your brother has a podcast as well. Um, have you ever been on? His, have you ever been on his podcast? Not yet, not yet. But for the record, just going back to 1987, I'm still pissed off at you. <laughs> yeah. I was just not happy say. about it. Not happy. 175 juniors and Bobby J is first into the third turn, and he takes me out on the first lap. Oh man, that was that not was happy. a long never forget. Way. That was a long drive back to Colorado from <laughs> Somerville. I was kind of uh, ashamed to show my face after that, but uh, oh, yeah. no, good, good times, right, Rich? Good, good times. Good times. Live and good learn. Experiences. Sure. Life oh, yeah. is all about experiences. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So let's, let's dive into this, Rich. Tell us how you got started in the race and event promotion world. Yeah. I graduated from uh, UNC Charlotte in 1994 and I moved to Greenville to become a full-time bike racer. And there was a local promoter that was doing a big criterium, national level criterium called the Michelin Cycling Classic. He didn't want to do it anymore. And so they called me through some friends because, you know, since I was a full-time bike racer, I technically didn't have a job back then, right? That's the way people thought. And so he called me and my roommate who used to be uh, Chuck Hodge, who is now VP of USA Cycling. And they called us and said, hey, would you like to take over this bike race? And we said, sure. How hard can it be? So we jumped into it and started calling the city and sponsors. And, you know, the race continued on probably for the better part of 15 or so more years. Now, not only do you promote Grand Fondo events, but then you also mm -hmm. have a grassroots Hinkapi training series that goes we on do. here. Tell us a little bit about that and how how the Grand Fondo got started and... Yeah, so the training series, I've been putting it on myself for about 23 years. Really, the main purpose has been to give back to the sport. If you promote an event grassroots, such as the Spring Series, you really have to expect that you're not going to make a living doing it. And I, and I found out pretty quick early on in the, in the promoting of it that we weren't going to make any money. But I made the decision to to continue it because I, it was my give back to the sport. And, and really, it was really re rewarding for me to see all these people coming from all over, basically all over the East Coast to come do these little races. You know, we'd have in the heyday, we'd have 580 riders on one Saturday and, you know, 550 on a Sunday. And so we continue doing that, it, you know, as all these events are, they're weather dependent. So some days you do well and some weeks you don't. And if you look at it from that standpoint, you know, as a strictly business event and, and trying to make money, trying to make a living at something like the Spring Series, it, it doesn't work, right? And the reason it's kind of worked for us was we made a decision early on. It's like, this is our responsibility now to keep the sport going, keep these races going. Yes, it takes work and time and effort and you have some risk, but at the end of the day, you want to keep the sport going. And, you know, there's not enough people out there doing that. And even to this day, as busy as we are with sportswear and the hotel and the team and all this stuff going on, People ask me every day, including you, Bobby J, why do you keep doing this? Like, why do you wake up at five o'clock in the morning to, you know, pitch tents and put tape on the ground and have these races? And, you know, we do it because we want to keep it going. And it's funny, just last night on the Bella News uh, website, I was kind of playing around and I saw a documentary about Floyd Bennett Field, right? And it was really, for me, it was really moving because it was a guy who puts on these races in an old airport in New York City. 
Um, and he just does it because he loves it, right? And he does it on a Thursday night and he has 100 people out there racing their bikes, but it's really done out of passion and really a sense of responsibility to keep the sport going. Because like you said, Bobby, when we met in 1986, back then it was, you know, we thought we were going to be great. Bobby J, you became great, right? And in, in the sport of cycling, but we really had these high hopes and expectations. And, and if we didn't have people like your dad back then, and these race promoters and the red singer and the, all these big bike races devoting their time, the sport would never be where it is. How much harder is it to put an event on now than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, or, or is that the case or, yeah. or what do you think's happening? It, I think it is harder because, you know, it's specifically talking about like, you know, now what's taken over is these mass participation events, right? The gravel rides and the fundos. 10 or 15 years ago, if you guys remember that far back, there wasn't that many options, right? And so you could be successful when your club putting on a century ride, starting in a parking lot with a lady in a bullhorn and saying go and five volunteers and you would finish and you did 100 miles and it was great. Now with so much competition, you really can only stand out if it's an event, right? And I'll go back to what Bobby asked earlier, you know, tell me about when you started your Grand Fondo. I started the Grand Fondo in 2012, really with the intent of only doing this ride as a celebration to George's career, right? He was, in my opinion, because I'm a little biased, he was the most iconic U.S. cyclist in history. He was well-liked by everyone, and he was retiring in 2012. So I wanted to have a celebration. And just like, you know, Bobby throws a 40th birthday party for his wife, I'm being nice, Bobby. Um, you, you, you really tried not to spare any expense, right? So I went into it with that attitude. You know, the course and, and sort of the difficulty really is only about 30% of the event. Five or 10 years ago, the course and how hard it was, was about 95% of the event because that's all people concentrated on. As things kind of mature, to me, in my opinion, it's about 25 or 30% of the event. The event is, you know, bands at the rest stops, gourmet food at the rest stops, you know, big screen TV, live video coverage. Back then, my kids were young. So they were 12, 10, and about five years old. I wanted my kids to be able to come to the event and enjoy the event, not knowing anything about the sport of cycling. And so we had jumpy castles and popcorn and bands and all this stuff going on. And so my point being that year one, thinking it was a party for George, we spared no expense. So we made it a real event for everybody, not only the rider, but the family member waiting on the side of the road. And I think, I think there was a need for that in the market. Not, not saying that nobody had done that, but our main focus was that 30% that was not the ride. And we try to build on that and try to give people a good experience because as you guys know, you, you've raced at a high level, but you've also raced the tour of the cornfield somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, right? And so when you go do that race, it's not really sustainable in my opinion, because you really can't show it off to your wife or your parents or your grandparents or your kids because you're in the field in the middle of nowhere. There's no food and no drink and there's nothing to do. And you come by every 40 minutes, right? That doesn't help the sport at all. And so kind of by default, I found that doing a celebration and really sparing no expense and trying to, and the spare no expense part for me came from my experience in the past with the spring series, because I just wanted to give back to the sport and put on a cool event, whether it made money or not was irrelevant. And so I came in with that attitude to have this retirement party for George spare no expense and making sure everybody had a good time, not expecting it to be a yearly thing. And it just, by default, it grew and, and it got, you know, it got pretty popular. Yeah. And now growing from 2012, 
last year you had three different Grand Fondo events. The the one in Greenville, mm-hmm. you had the uh, what four? Yeah. One in Fort Worth, one in Boise, and one in yeah. Chattanooga. Yeah, so you, Chattanooga. Yeah, so four events. So yeah, I I totally agree. There is a difference between a race and an event, and right. but but you being one of the early adopters to this Grand Fondo technique, and then like mm-hmm. you said, not just having five people volunteering and one lady with a bullhorn over the years. How much do these events actually cost? And then in a scenario like now, because I understand that you were ahead of the game and actually have already postponed the mm-hmm. Fort Worth Grand Fondo this year, what does it take to put on an event like this? And then in, in a situation like this where it's postponed or even canceled, how can the listeners, how can the people that have supported actually help you to ensure that you don't just go away at the end of, of all this? Right. We announce events a year in advance. And Bobby, you're, you're part of our next announcement, which will be fairly soon in selecting our, our new gravel course. And you've been a big part of that. And our main mission is to announce it with the year in advance, because knowing what I know now and having the experience I'm putting on events and experience with the hotel and sportswear, any event, no matter what it is, is a, it's a full-time business. So you have to market, you have to have the proper PR, you have to have the proper you know, image, logos, the celebrities, the experience, and you have to be able to talk about that and sell it for a full year in order for it to be successful. Again, there's a lot of people doing events out there, but they just kind of announce them three months before or six months before, and they expect people just to come to them. And you can't, you have to find those people and you have to tell them what you're doing and you have to show them the look and feel before they're actually at the event, if that makes sense. So it's really a, it's a full-time business to promote these things. And so for us, the costs leading up to these events is, is mostly the cost is really the expenses leading up to the actual ride. The actual ride is a, is a small percentage of the actual expense of the whole event. So you have, you know, you have to, do deposits, hotel blocks, you have to, you know, order the food, you have to fly to the the host city with, you know, three or four employees, five different times, you have to do Facebook advertising, you have to do the marketing, you have to print the catalog, do the jerseys, all that is done for these events beforehand. And so when the event time comes, your additional expenses aren't that much. And you'll see out there in the market, whether it's a marathon that cancel or an Ironman or you know, fortunately, we're in the situation where we can just defer whether it's a cancellation, say Fort Worth, we can either do Fort Worth in the fall or we can defer to one of our other grand fundos. And so we're in the fortunate situation where we're allowing them to be able to move it to another another event. There's some people out there that just do one 10K or one marathon a year that and, and when they cancel it, they've already spent that money. So they're in a really difficult situation where they either have to refund or they just have to cancel it altogether. So we're trying to give people another option because again, going back to where we started, our mission is not to pay our mortgage with these events. Our mission is to continue to support growing, to promote sportswear and our other brands and to introduce new people to cycling. And that's been our mission for since 1994 and it hasn't changed at all. And you just mentioned there, you said guys have multiple events, so you're you're kind of prepared. I'm wondering what happens to some of those events like does a does canceling your event does that put future versions at at risk is this something that i'm just sort of in, in, interested to get your opinion on like what is the fallout of this going to be all of these events canceling this yeah, year yeah i th- i think there's going to be a, a fairly big fallout because there are, there are many promoters that are only doing one event 
And like I said earlier, most of those expenses are before the event actually occurs. And most people don't understand that. Unfortunately, with thin margins or most of these promoters not really making a real living at it, it, it puts them in a really compromising position because if you're not refunding people's entry fees and they get mad and they have a sour taste about your event, if you're not giving them another option, and you might be in a situation, we're not fortunately, but you might be in a situation where you're not really capable of refunding people. And so can you do, can you postpone it for next year? Well, your costs for this year have already been absorbed, right? Because you got permit fees, you have all the stuff. So I think it puts a lot, a lot of people in a difficult situation. Going back, there's, you know, there's some examples out there. And there's a lot of examples that I probably don't know of really successful events that have been going on for years. Um, But there's also that, in my opinion, is a common denominator. So I'll select a few. Um, Tulsa Tough is one, right? You have have Tulsa Tough has been widely successful for a long time. But they're catering to, you know, I, I saw a documentary the other day. They're catering to, like, just general people who aren't cyclists. You have this whole thing going on in Crybaby Hill and people excited. Most of those people don't even know who won the race, but they're there, they're cheering, they're part of this event because they made it into an event. You know, let's hope it doesn't get canceled. But if it does, that is a sustainable product that will continue on because it, it's built this whole brand, right? You know, the same thing Bobby and I would talk about the other day. We go to this criterium every year here in Spartanburg and they've made something different, right, Bobby? They, they've made an event. They, they sell tents up and down the backstretch, 10 by 10 or 10 by 20 on both sides of the course to local businesses for a few hundred bucks. And those businesses bring in catering and beer and wine, and they have a, a local tailgate at every tent. Well, the course is packed, right? And so that's being funded by, by people who aren't necessarily cycling fans, but they're just people that just want to be part of an event, right? And to me, that that sort of structure is, is is sustainable. The structure that's not sustainable is the guy who is the heart and soul of our sport, the guy who's taking a risk and getting a loan to put on a, a weekend bike race series, and he might scrape together a couple of sponsors, and he got all his entries, pre-entries, and 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 then their event gets canceled. He's He doesn't have any other option, right? Because he kind of borrowed money or, you know, got the city kind of front something on the front end, he's in a, he's in a bad predicament. And unfortunately, most people in, in that situation, because they're just doing it out of the passion of the sport. Interesting. Well, Rich, with kind of going off course here a little bit, you know, you and your brother are also owners of Hotel Domestique. Outside of the bike racing, bike event promotion, has this situation with what's going on right now affected the hotels or how do you see that affecting the hotel? Because, I mean, Greenville is an amazing place to ride. You guys have an amazing hotel. But I'm just curious where you see that going here in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's changing. It's changing by the hour, right? But fortunately, we have a facility that's small, right? It's only 13 rooms. It's... um it's secluded, right? It's in, on the base of the mountain, so there's really nothing around it. It's almost sort of a getaway destination where you're not in a 300-room hotel or you're not in a restaurant with 250 people. So I think that could potentially not be such a bad thing for us unless you know the, the government here just closes down all restaurants and closes down activities with you know 10 people. Right now, <clears throat> the suggestion or the recommendation is you know 50 people or more from the last last time I heard, which really doesn't affect us that much because our hotel is only 13 rooms. So if you kind of do the math, it, you rarely have more than 
50 people out there unless it's a wedding. So that has potential to change and it's not in our favor. I think it affects pretty much everybody out there. And so you have to sort of brace for the best and do, do whatever you can to keep things going. You know, you've been an innovator of a lot of really interesting things that have made your races events. I'm always curious because you, you've definitely sketched this all out. I love the live TV. I love the big screen TV at the finish lines. Like you said, the bouncy houses and the party atmosphere. But if you had an unlimited budget, what would be that next step of making your event even to the next level, taking it to the next level? So I drive my staff crazy because I have this, this about, if I were to guess, it's about a 200 to 300 foot long red carpet that we have to lug around to every single event. And the staff hates the red carpet. They hate it because it's heavy. It's cumbersome. We're on our hands and knees. We're vacuuming the red carpet. But again, going to an event, I want everybody to feel like Bobby J on the podium of the Tour de France, right? I want everybody to feel special when they cross that finish line. And so the staff is the big joke at the office because the red carpet just sucks, right? It doesn't fit anywhere. You got to just you need 15 people to move it, especially in the rain. Um, it becomes a thing. So if I if I had an unlimited budget, the whole course would be on a red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. I love it. I love it. And I, I have to say, if to those of you out there that haven't done one of the, the Hincapi Grand Fondos, they do something very unique with their medals. And everyone gets a medal. Rich, maybe you can tell everybody what multifunction that metal has yeah it's a, a bottle cap opener which is uh, very important at the end of a ride so especially since we have unlimited beer which that's a unlimited food and unlimited beer for not only the rider but all the family members and friends that come as you guys can imagine is a big expense but it's super important to me because we want everybody to have a good time and uh, the one thing that a lot of people gave me crap about including my brother and i think you bobby julik was that i have <laughs> I have chicken fingers at one of the rest stops, which you guys could not fathom. Oh, wait a second. Hold up, son. Like that's my favorite. That's my favorite part (laughs) of the Grand Fondo in that last rest stop is woofing down one of those chicken fingers. Let me tell you, like what cyclist is going to eat chicken fingers after 60 miles? That's what I heard for like a year. Oh, man. And I'll tell you what, there's thousands of chicken fingers that are gone. (laughs) There's not one chicken finger left in that rest stop at the end of the ride. Dude, I'm all about the chicken fingers. See, yeah, and good. the beer. I like that. This sounds like beer. I need to. I need to get down there. What have I been doing this whole time? You're invited. I got you. I got you. You're invited. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rich, mate, thank you so much for your time. I do. You. I do want to give you the opportunity before you go. Any dirt on Bobby? Any any stories that we okay. <laughs> that oh, might yeah. be you know I'll, that might be I'll, worth sharing? I got I got a uh, plenty of dirt. Some of it is probably not appropriate for this podcast. It's I see not, I see him pulling out a list. I can see yeah, you live. He's pulling out his list. Exactly. So Bobby J is right now. He is super fit. Um, he will never tell you that. And when Bobby J is super fit, he becomes ten times more annoying. And let me explain because Bobby J likes to talk. But when you're suffering, that's why I have a podcast. I mean, you know, I know that's exactly right. It's perfect for you when you're (laughs) suffering up a climb and Bobby J's next to you. He does not stop talking. He will tell you every story in the world and you have to respond because you can't be rude. Well, I myself have a hard time responding because I'm not as fit as Bobby. (laughs) And so it becomes incredibly difficult to ride with him. That sounds like the absolute worst. Bobby, I'm not going for a ride Mm -hmm. with you anytime soon. 
No, don't. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for your time. That was fantastic and really insightful. Appreciate yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you, you Rich. See you guys. That said, Bobby, we are stuck indoors for the time being. What are you doing? What are you doing inside? Are you going crazy? I, I'm getting there. Uh, there's quite a bit on my to-do list. I mean, I've been meaning to clean my garage for, I think, nine months now. So I think that's on the list for tomorrow. Gotta Gotta hit that. The attic is next. Yard work, you know, the weather's getting better. I can go out and do some yard work. But, um, you know, all, all joking aside, you know, we really appreciate everyone listening mm. to our podcast. And, you know, we are in a very unique time in our life. Let's hope that um, this is the only time that we have to deal with something like this. And, you know, just be safe out there, support each other. You know, group rides and these great events aren't going to be around for a little bit. But doesn't mean that um, you can't read a new book or you know, help clean the house, spend a little bit more time with the kids and we'll get through this. And with that, that's all we have time for this week on another special episode of Fizzo. As I said, next week we will be back. And until then, thank you so much. Huge thank you to Rich for his insights uh, and thank you to you guys, our listeners, for continuing to tune in and supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Um, you can also get the show as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. Please continue to show your support for us, uh, for them, by subscribing and also leaving a comment and a rating. And yeah, if you want to, um, and actually especially over this week and in the coming weeks while we're all on lockdown, get at us on social media. People that you want us to interview, stories that you want to hear about or hear told by those involved, get in touch with us on Twitter, Fizopod. Uh, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D on Twitter or get in touch with me at that is Gus on Instagram. Uh, Bobby's also on Instagram at Bobby.Julik. Until next week, thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there, everyone. And don't forget to put your socks on. It's the end of the world as we know it. It is the end. I feel free.